Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson. If you're new, I recommend you hit like or love. If you're old and you've been to us before, then hit it again because algorithms don't know. And with that, I am Kate Gibson. And there's my co-host. And I'm Charlie Gibson. I am Kate's father. And more importantly for today, I am Arlene Gibson's husband. And Kate is Arlene Gibson's daughter. Because today we're going to look at a book called The Teacher's written by Alexandra Robbins. And Arlene, my wife, and Kate's mom has been a teacher and an administrator, albeit in private schools all her life and single-sex schools. So maybe not typical for the Alexandra Robbins book, but Alexandra's book really gives you a good idea of what it's like to be a teacher in the United States today. And it's not easy. No, it's sort of terrifying in the sense that her thesis seems to be as bad as you think it is. It's it's worse. I mean, I think this is an important book. You know, one of the things that Alexandra Robbins did at the end of the book that I really loved was in her acknowledgments, she just got a chance to list every teacher she'd ever loved. Yeah. And it got me to thinking of all the teachers that I'd ever loved. Mrs. Casarino, who taught me to read. Dr. Cole, who taught me to write. Mr. Pridham, who taught me to have confidence in myself. There are so many teachers that make me who I am. And I was thinking how great it would be to have an acknowledgement section where I could just wax rhapsodic about the people who helped shape my mind, for better or worse, into what it is today. You know, I owe everything to the teachers that I had, and I hope this book will be read because it makes so many important points about America's education system. Alexandra writes in the prologue, the truth is that you don't know what it is really like to be a teacher. The inspiration and frustration, the humor, the tears, the joys, unless you've stepped into their shoes to get an uncensored, no holes barred look at their lives. I followed three teachers' stories over the course of a school year. And she also, as she you will hear, she taught during the year. She had an extended substitute teacher's role, and she felt that that truly enriched, and I think it did as well, truly enriched of the book. And then she talked to hundreds of other teachers as well. You do really get a look at what it's like to be a teacher. There's 4 million, she points out, 4 million K through 12 teachers in the United States. We hope all of you are listening. Uh, <laughs> we, we, will, we will take attendance at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the podcast. But sadly, 567,000 of those 4 million teachers left after the pandemic, got out of the profession. That's 14%. Now, I don't know how exact her numbers are, but if it's anywhere close to that, we've got a terrible, terrible problem. One of the things that stays with me from this book that really surprised me was the way that parents sometimes treat teachers. We are all fiercely Many of us are fiercely protective of our children. There's nothing more important in our lives. But the idea that you would sort of combat a teacher to get at that is is beyond me. I just gained a new respect for teachers during the pandemic. So the idea that parents still don't have an appreciation for teachers after what we went through when our kids were home for so many years <laughs> is completely beyond me. She begins, well, first of all, she organizes the book like a school year. She does it month by month and writes about what is important and what's going on in schools during that particular month and does it very, very well. But the beginning of each month, she gives you little outrageous, outrageous things that she heard while she was interviewing uh, teachers. Just to give you an example, the chapter on August, a Maryland administrator to a group of female math teachers, long-term subs are really hard to find, so I need you not to get sick or pregnant this year. Thank you. 
or a parent. And this is, I think, typical, as you'll hear if you read the book, a parent at a parent teacher's conference banging his fists on the table and screaming at a Michigan high school English teacher. I'm coming to get you, little girl. Just wait. I'm coming to get you. And so many teachers hear from parents. I pay your salaries because I pay taxes. Well, they don't pay much in salaries, as it turns out. Um, and they actually don't directly pay the teacher's salaries, although I'm sure they pay taxes, but they think that entitles them to an awful lot. U.S. teachers' salaries compared to those of workers in other professions with a similar education levels are worse than in every other industrialized nation. In the 2010s, the national average salary, I'm quoting all this, uh, the national average teacher salary dropped four and a half percent in the 2010s. At the same time, college costs and student loans were ballooning and teachers are paid 23 and a half percent less than U.S. professionals with similar education and experience. We all say it's a, it's a meme. We all say there's no more important individual than a teacher. And yet we don't treat them that way. I will say, too, one of the things I think you should listen for, because it can be hard to understand why anybody's a teacher when you listen to these facts and you read this book. But you should listen also to the joy that Alexander talks about in the teaching profession, because, man, I don't want to talk anybody into not teaching because it is a noble profession, but it is difficult out there. And uh, our conversation with Alexandra Robbins, I hope, proves that we're on the precipice of an education revolution. So here we are, our conversation with Alexandra Robbins. Alexandra Robbins, good to have you in the bookcase. Really appreciate your joining us. This is a book that I approach thinking, I don't need to read this. I know this stuff because my wife has been a school administrator and teacher and Kate's mom, obviously the same since they're the same person. But you, <laughs> but you, you start by saying, you think you know what's inside, but you don't. What don't we know? I don't think people truly understand what it's like to work in schools unless you actually work in schools. Um, it's funny. I can't tell you how many teachers have told me that they read the book and then they gave it to their spouse because they felt that their spouse didn't truly understand what their day-to-day -day life was like. And they felt that um, their spouse would understand it better um, by, by reading the stories of these teachers. I think a lot of people make assumptions about what goes on in school. I think, unfortunately, people assume they know what goes on in schools and what it's like to be a teacher simply because they attended school as a student. But the reality is education has changed a lot in even just the last 20 years. And the job of a teacher has changed along with it. Now, you talk about the fact that you didn't emphasize COVID too much in this book because the problems existed before COVID. All COVID did was make them really vivid. But I'm sort of surprised that we have these issues still because as a parent who survived COVID with her kids, I never had more respect for teachers than when I had to teach them, you know, when my living room became my classroom. That hasn't changed the respect that administrators or parents are showing to teachers. Actually, I think the majority of people truly do support teachers, just, just like you said. However, the minority factions that don't are very loud and very aggressive and very coordinated. So that's what we're dealing with. And one of the points of the book and what I'm trying to get across to people is that there are so many more of us educator allies and teachers need us to speak out for them and speak up for them to sort of counter the negativity they're hearing from that fringe, we'll say. That actually leads me to my next question, which is, do you think a teacher 
had to write this book? Like, do you think someone who didn't have teaching experience could have brought the same perspective to the book? Well, you know, I, I hadn't intended to write this book from the perspective of a, of a substitute teacher. I had my, my MO as a journalist is I sort of delve into subcultures and I represent the voices of members of subcultures who I feel aren't heard and their voices needed to be amplified. So I went into this thinking that's what I was doing. I had short-term subbed, sure, um, but I never, ever considered myself a teacher. It was completely coincidental that while I was writing the book, a school where I had short-term subbed contacted me a couple days before the school open house in August and said, we have a third grade class and we don't have a teacher. Uh, can you cover it until we find someone? So not only was I never expecting to be a long term sub, but I certainly wasn't expecting to teach third grade full time for almost an entire semester. And that happened in the middle of the process of writing this book, which <laughs> which was very difficult. <laughs> but it also gave me, I'm, I'm so glad it happened because it both gave me a window into what teachers were telling me that I could then experience firsthand. You know, I ran the active shooter lockdown drill in our classroom. I did back to school night. I did parent teacher conferences. I did report card grades, which by the way, are way more complicated than, than people realize. <laughs> and at the same time, the teachers I followed for a year, Miguel, Rebecca, and Penny, because I was so immersed in their worlds and hearing about their day-to-day -day teaching experiences, they made me a better teacher. Hmm. What did you learn in that semester that you really didn't know going in? I didn't realize that just one rewarding moment with a child, whether you encourage them, like we had one-on-one -on -one writing workshops, third grade is the fable unit, and uh, whether you encourage them to come up with their own story and they do and they are so proud of their writing or they do a science experiment that works or a child who is struggling with math the teachers call it the aha moment you see it in their eyes and you just see that the, the sort of shine i had underestimated just how long that one moment can keep you going like that moment can keep you going for weeks just that just that single moment of connection and realization um, with a student. And it's the same thing with teachers. You know, if you have a, a wonderful moment of collaboration with a coworker or um, the two of you figure out something that's going to help uh, a, a student who's struggling with reading, it's just... Um, the job is, I knew it was joyous. I know teachers do it because it just, it, they feel that it's a calling often, but I had underestimated just how life-changing those moments can be. You, you talk a little bit about teaching being a profession that people feel that they're called to. It's actually, I'm in, I'm in graduate school to get my library degree, my master's in library science. And I'm, I'm interested because we talk about vocational awe burnout, that when you feel called to a profession, that it's easy to burn out on it because in some ways it's harder to than you think it is. You can feel like the job doesn't end and that there's always more you can be doing to engage students, to reach them, to make your lessons more engaging. And so it gets, I mean, yeah, it can get tiring because you're working so hard, not because you have to, but because you want to. On the other hand, I, I do take issue generally with the popular phrase teacher burnout. I mm. think it is extremely misleading. Basically, mm. it's, it's 
is, is the phrase the media uses to describe exhaustion or stress from overwork. But if you look at the academic studies, they say that teacher burnout is caused by uh, inadequate workplace re- resources and support. It's caused mm-hmm. by high stakes testing. It's caused by time pressure. It's caused by not enough of what you need to do your job right. But instead of fixing these issues, like you'd think any typical workplace would, school systems instead put it on the teacher's shoulders. They say, oh, well, teachers should just do a better job of self-care. And I'm aggressively air quoting here (laughs) as if the burden (laughs) is on the teachers to go relax, to relieve the stress caused by a job that is actually impossible to do during their paid contracted hours. So I feel like the phrase teacher burnout faults teachers for not being able to cope with an impossible situation rather than blaming the school systems that are creating the impossible situation in the first place. So instead of saying, for example, teachers have the highest burnout levels, I think the issue needs to be reframed so that we say, well, no, school systems are the worst employers at providing their workers with the supports and resources they need. Miguel, you're the teacher that you followed who's a special ed teacher. My goodness, what those people who who do special ed go through and what he's going through. And I can imagine he always feels I have to do more. I have to do more. I have to do more. And even I have to spend more to buy supplies that the school system isn't giving me. That is something that I have found drives teachers all the time. They don't feel that they're spending enough time on their profession. You found that? Yes, absolutely. It's a a profession based on relationships and there's always more you can do to invest in a relationship. And and you mentioned classroom supplies. You're exactly right. 94% of teachers pay out of pocket for their own classroom supplies. They pay an average of $500 a year. Penny, a teacher in the South whom I followed for a year, once spent $2,000 in a year of her own money on supplies. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your methodology for this book. How on earth did you follow your three teachers, Rebecca, Penny, and Miguel, and teach and still get these sort of eyewitness, like, what? Would, how did you approach them about recording their year and how did that come about? Oh, well, whenever, so this is, I've been doing books in this style for, for years. I find many, many people, I, you know, I ended up interviewing hundreds of teachers for this book. So I know from the beginning, I have plenty of people to talk to. And so many of them could have been um, the teachers who I followed in the book, but I narrowed it down to people who I feel readers would love and root for as main characters and who had stories who that were both relatable and, and fascinating. So in these, you know, I'm air quoting main characters, but in these main characters cases, Penny was dealing with a toxic workplace and an unsupportive principal. And I think a lot of people can relate to toxicity in the workplace. Miguel was fighting a school board that discriminated against special ed programs, teachers, and students. And Rebecca, who actually had a great relationship with her colleagues, she was doing great in school. Um, She hadn't had time to date in five years because she put everything (laughs) she had into teaching. So I followed her the year she vowed to try to figure out her work-life balance and get into the dating pool. You know, their stories are important and relatable and revealing, but they're also fun to read, which is why I chose them. In terms of the actual reporting, usually I am right there with uh, the sources whom I follow. 
However, because Rebecca, Penny, and Miguel wanted to be completely 100% candid about their lives professionally and personally, and they were, they shared a lot of things that even their friends didn't know, um, they had to be completely <laughs> anonymous. So I could not go into their schools and be there with them because their mm. administrators couldn't know that I was following them. Their coworkers mm. couldn't know. They did tell some of their coworkers. Their students couldn't know. The students' parents couldn't know. Um, so it was basically just being in touch every single day. It got very personal. You say you may think you know what's going on, but you don't. And we all know that teachers are underpaid egregiously, but Penny had 18 years experience and a $40,000 salary. I just, I gasped when you told me that. And it's terrible. Five times more likely teachers are to take on part-time jobs because they need the money to supplement their income and 70% do. Why would you teach given that kind of uh, lack of compensation? Yeah. I, it's a good question. I asked them and I, there's a teacher in Texas who put it so eloquently to me. LeVar is a PE and health teacher in Texas. And um, for a time, so he, he also, he coaches every season, soccer, football, basketball. For a long time after teaching, he would go immediately to his job as a carpet cleaner. He also did that job all day Saturdays. And then after that job, uh, he would go work the night shift as a hospital tech. He rarely got sleep. Um, he worked all these jobs just to be able to afford to continue teaching. But at the same time, sometimes his cell phone was cut off. Sometimes his water was cut off. Um, he hurt his knee pretty badly, but he said he didn't have time to go get it looked at because he supported his wife and two daughters. And he said sometimes he would tell his family that he already ate, even when he didn't, just so his family would eat more. And I said to him, LeVar, you could get another job that pays more and takes up less time. Why are you a teacher? And he said, because it makes my soul happy. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. And I and and again, that's one thing you asked what I learned as a as a as a teacher that I didn't know before I taught, I would have thought, well, that I mean, that can't make up for all he's going through, but it really does make your soul happy. <laughs> There's one great line in the book. Maybe it's a cliche among teachers, but I'd never heard it before. We don't teach for the income, we teach for the outcome. Well, yes, that's a meme and they they teach they stay in the profession because of the relationships with kids. However, it is a job, so they do teach for the income too. And I think too many people put teachers on sort of a martyr pedestal and dismiss the idea that they need to pay, be paid more because, oh, well, it's their calling and they're, they have this rewarding career and this is what they want to do. So it's okay that they're not paid like, a, like they should be. Um, meanwhile, there's the teacher pay gap right now in the United States is at an all-time high. Teachers are paid 24% less than professionals with similar education and experience. So... They really do deserve the income that they've earned and they're not getting it. Teach for the outcome, but they shouldn't have to choose between the outcome and the income yes, is what you're saying. Yes, they shouldn't have to choose between the kids and the pay. We should be paying them more than more than they need because they are in this job. They shouldn't have to sacrifice anything to remain in a profession that's arguably the most important profession that we have. You took issue earlier with the phrase teacher burnout. You also take issue, and I think it's a very interesting distinction, with the belief that there is a teacher shortage. You say it's just a shortage of jobs that adequately pay 
commensurate to qualifications and that jobs that actually respect teachers. That's an interesting distinction because we do have a terrible, terrible shortage right now of teachers. Yeah. And I think, you know, I talked about teacher burnout and teacher shortage. Notice how these phrases both seem to put the blame on teachers, right? It's this it's this educational narrative that what's wrong with the school system can be put on the teachers. Oh, well, teachers are burned out. They're not doing a good job of self-care. Oh, well, teach, there's not enough teachers. Te- there's a teacher shortage. That means they're not really stepping up. That's what these imply, but they're wrong and, and completely misleading. There are plenty of potential aspiring and qualified teachers out there. And as you said, the shortages of te- is of teaching jobs that would make these skilled professionals want to be teachers in the first place. You know, if they were paid properly, if they had enough planning time during their day to do their job at school instead of bleeding into the night hours at home, if they were treated with respect and uh, they had more autonomy in the classroom, there wouldn't be a teacher shortage at all. There's a sort of a contradiction in what you write about. You say teachers are very mutually supportive in most cases, and yet you say that Three quarters of teachers report workplace bullying, bullying by other teachers and by principals and that star teachers, the really good ones, are the one who tend to get bullied by their colleagues, perhaps because of jealousy. I'm amazed. I was amazed to hear that that is a problem. The highest frequency um, of bullying in schools comes from the top. It comes from principals and administrators. And the reason that can happen is because teachers have no recourse. I'm working with a group of teachers now who are dealing with a very toxic principal who verbally abuses them, who threatens to fire them, who is doing all these things to them. And they feel that they can't speak out about it. They reported it to the district. The district appears to be doing nothing about it. And so they're stuck. They're in a place where if they tick off the principal, he can change their grade. And he's done that. He can say, okay, you're not going to be a seventh grade teacher anymore. You're going to be an eighth grade teacher, or I'm going to give you extra duties for this, or I'm going to take you out of your position on leadership. And so the teachers that I'm talking to, many of them are now transferring from the school because they see no other way to go about it. There's this power distance, as Joe Blaze, an expert on the subject, has has said, where teachers don't have any way to confidentially report and resolve situations when they are being bullied by administrators. You're right. They didn't sign up for this. And these, these things are examples of how The ways that society has been failing us lead people to put the responsibilities on to teachers, which is ridiculous. But I mean, if you think about the only thing that changed between the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting and the 2022 Rob School shooting was that teachers were trained to hide their students and barricade the door. That's the only substantive change that we saw. We didn't see any change in any of the factors that actually may have caused the shootings. It's just sort of a Band-Aid approach. Well, okay, teachers are going to put themselves between their students and a bullet. And this is an example of teachers, again, having to bear the weight and responsibility for society's failures. We saw it uh, during the pandemic when schools went virtual and the government wasn't, wasn't feeding children, they had to go to public schools because the schools were tasked with the what should be the societal duty of treating, uh, of feeding people who were food insecure. 
you write about the importance of the profession, the vulnerability of the profession, the joy of the profession, but you write about the system. Obviously, the system is inherently broken. So I guess my question is, is now having sat in the miasma of this for a few years, is there anything that gives you hope? Yeah, there are a couple of things that gives me hope. Um, first of all, when you see current surveys more than 80% of people are happy with their local schools. So in terms of the negativity, the people who are more likely to say they are not pleased with their local school system are actually people who don't even have school-aged children. They're just being loud. (sighs) They're just being loud and aggressive. So the people who are actually stakeholders are supportive of educators. And I am hopeful that people realize now, especially with the book bans, that now is the time that we all need to stand up and speak out for teachers. I also see that there's backlash from students both protecting their teachers and protecting their libraries, which is so important. Mm -hmm. The younger generations Mm -hmm. are standing up for Mm -hmm. educators and standing up for books. Yeah. And we are seeing movements in certain places. We are seeing talk about a $60,000 base salary for teachers, which uh, number one is not enough. Number two doesn't account for differences in cost of living across the country, but at least people are talking about it. There is a, a small rural district in, I believe, Oregon, Baker, I think, um, that just announced that they're raising the base salary for teachers from $38,000 a year to $60,000 a year. And um, this came not from the union, but from the superintendent. And the superintendent said it on a Zoom. And apparently the teachers were crying because it just just makes all the difference. They can afford childcare. There was a couple um, of married teachers who were saying "This, this, this changes our lives completely. And so I think people are starting to realize, at least let's start by paying teachers more because we can't fix the education system unless we fix teachers' working conditions. Teachers' working conditions are the same thing as students' learning conditions. And I think there's starting to be an, an awareness of that. Alexandria, if someone were to, to take issue with the execution of your book, they might say th- that you dwell too much on the negativity, that you point out in order to illustrate the problems, you point out the terrible, terrible, egregious examples, I quoted some, that go on within the school system. And yet, obviously, those are exceptions to the rule that millions of classrooms every day operate smoothly with good teaching going on. Is that a, is that a fair criticism of the book? It's funny how many teachers have written me to say, oh, I thought I was the only one who that happened to. <laughs> There's a lot going <laughs> on in the undercurrent of schools. You know, it's, if you want to talk about the egregious example of, for example, the, the one you brought up with the with the mother with the Starbucks card and she said the word that I'm not going to repeat. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's actually, I think probably most teachers have had let's say, at least one encounter with a parent in the past year that is very similar. So, do those things happen every day? No, but they do happen. And it's important for people to understand what teachers are dealing with. And more importantly, teachers want the public to understand what they're dealing with because we can't, we can't be motivated to fight to improve teachers' working conditions unless we first understand how bad they are. Mm-hmm. Well, to end, and I I, I think it's a good way to end. What is wonderful, said one of your teachers, what is wonderful about being a teacher is knowing that even after I'm gone, my life will have meant something. And that is a lovely thought. And I think it is in the back of many teachers' minds. 
even with all the problems that you illustrate so well that they have to deal with. The book is The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable and Important Profession. Alexandra Robbins, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend. Rapid fire questions for Alexandra Robbins. Book that made you want to become a journalist. Oh, wow. I wanted to be a journalist when I was 14. So, and I was reading a lot of Stephen <laughs> King then. So, I'm not sure I can connect the dots because <laughs> all I remember about my Stephen King days was that I would read books that were too scary for me. And then I'd ask my parents to walk me to the bathroom at night. And my room was right next to the bathroom in the house. So, I'm sorry. I, I don't have an appropriate answer to that one. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you my favorite? My favorite, I was a, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. And when I was 23, I was in the subway and I was rereading it. Oh. And there was an older woman who came came up to me and she put her, you know, it was open on my lap and she leaned over and she goes, it is so nice to see people of your age reading the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's fabulous. If you could have five minutes, Alexandra, with, with president Biden, what would you say to him? Thank you for stepping up. Hmm. Like that. When I was teaching, my biggest pet peeve was standardized tests. (laughs) And teaching for the test? Um, it's not even teaching for the test because I, I try not to do that. It's just it takes up so much time. You lose so much instructional time by having to administer these tests. And there are so many state tests, so many district tests that 
don't actually help the children learn. Your favorite part of teaching was? The kids. Just just mm. being with the kids, mutually learning together. It's just it's so fun. Having written about the education system for as long as you have, if you could tell a teacher who is starting out one thing, what would it be? Focus on the relationships with your students and your colleagues and, and find the ones that um, keep you going even through the tough days. Did you find the parents in your class supportive or a problem? One, one of your teachers in the book says, uh, I never get tired of my kids. I just get tired of the adults. Yeah, a lot of teachers feel that way. I was very lucky. Uh, the parents were grateful that uh, I stepped in um, because otherwise either there wouldn't have been a teacher or their um, kids would have been scattered among other classes and the other classes would have been enormous. So the parents I had were um, wonderfully supportive. Mm, What's the most inspiring book you've ever read about education? I like The Smartest Kids in the World because it shows what education is like in other countries. I also mm. like uh, Diane Ravitch's books about education because they mm. really get down into the nitty gritty of, of the educational <laughs> reform movement and how we got to where we are. Ravitch is very insightful. I've read some of her stuff. My wife is very influenced by her. Yep. Um, and finally, a question that we heard first on Stephen Colbert's show, but we think it's very illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Oh, um, five words. Okay. Helpful to many other people. Yeah, that's five. Good. Good. <laughs> I love it. I, I had my, it. I was counting on my hand. <laughs> Kate, as we talk to Alexandra Robbins, I, I know you had in mind a poster that your mother used to have in her office. It was up there for years. Yeah, it was by Robert Fulgham, who I believe wrote uh, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And he wrote, it will be a great day when our schools have all the money they need and our Air Force has to have a bake sale to buy a bomber. Yeah, yeah. The demands on teachers these days are just incredible. And then uh, as we talked about briefly, you know, over the last few years, we've also said, hey, would you mind putting your uh, body in front of a gun for our kids? 240 gun incidents in schools in 2021, a record high. And one teacher said, they call me a, a hero and I put myself between the, the shooter and my students, but they vilify me when I say, can't we cure the underlying problem? Yeah. I mean, why should you have to choose between protecting the kids you've been put in charge of and going home to your own? That yep. makes no yep. sense to me. But, uh, but yep. on the flip side, please be teachers, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that she made a really good point, too. And it actually makes me think more about my vocabulary. I thought she made a good point about stop using the phrase teacher burnout and teacher shortage, because right. it does. It puts the onus on the folks who do the work. And so I, I really appreciated that point she made. And it's one I'm going to take with me uh, and think about when I when I talk about teachers in the future. And, and one interesting political point, we're, we're arguing now about whether or not there should be loan forgiveness for students and their student loans when they're in school. But I would certainly think it would be a good idea, as she proposes in this book, the teachers get student teachers get student loan forgiveness and tax credits for every penny they spend on school supplies that they get paid parental leave. And uh, those those are things that it seems to me should be non-controversial. If you're going to forgive loans, we certainly should do them for teachers because it'll attract more people to the profession, I hope. 
Yeah, the morale for that profession shouldn't come entirely from the students that you teach. The morale should also come from the community that surrounds you, the administration that leads you, and the parents who send their kids to your school. So um, I, I don't know. This book was an eye opener for me, but probably shouldn't have been. Well, and she does. Uh, you were right to emphasize we don't want to be all negative about what she says. She she talks about the tough problems that teachers have that need to be corrected by school systems themselves, by voters with school referendum on bonds, with teacher pay, et cetera. She, she emphasizes all those problems and how real they are. But you cannot overemphasize because we've, well, you have and I have through, through my wife, we've been dealing with teachers all our lives and the joy that they get from their profession and how much they love it and how the kids worm their way into teachers' hearts is really inspiring. Well, who, who, who are yours? You know who my favorite teachers were. They were in and out of your living room because I went to your wife's, your, my mother's school. But who were your favorite teachers growing up? Mrs. Brooks, sixth grade. Miss Boyd, fifth grade. Mr. LaShure, who was a, a, a social studies teacher, uh, as was Mr. Cox, uh, Rod Cox, uh, Mr. Abel, who was strange name. He was in a wheelchair, but uh, he was a great social studies teacher. And then Mr. Forsyth, who was my 12th grade teacher, who just insisted, you need to learn to write. And that's, it's a lifelong skill that you just, you just have to know it. Those are just a few, actually. All of those folks out there who probably aren't still with us, but if they are, you are responsible for this journalist who you listen to and his writing skill and his and his speaking skill. I, that when the teacher in the book talks about my legacy will go on long after I'm gone. And you mentioned those names. Those people are still alive in you. They're sure. alive in the students that they had great success with and whose career they shaped. It's an incredible thing to do with your life. Oh, the list goes on. Miss Coulter, Miss Evans, Mrs. Eastman in kindergarten, who I remember well. Mrs. Mullins in first grade, Miss Sandwich in second grade, uh, Mrs. Lansing in fourth grade. You remember them. That's, that's just absolutely. They're, they're they're in your head and they're in your heart. Alexandra yeah. Robbins. The book is the teacher. Teachers, a year inside America's most vulnerable, important profession. And we didn't want to mix the message at all of uh, Alexandra Robbins' uh, book. So we had decided that we would do just, just her, just focus on her for this podcast. So let's, uh, let's let people know who's responsible for the podcast. Well, wait a minute. We, 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 we focused on her, but we also have to focus on us a little bit. Like, I mean, let's focus on her, but then let's talk about what's really important, which is the two of us. And I want to, as long as we have a little extra time and we don't have a bookstore, I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys about something I'm really excited about. And I'm dragging my father along into the excitement with me. ABC said we should do some genre books. And so, of course, um, I just said horror, horror, horror. Yes, please, 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 please. Um, and my father, with great excitement, was like, oh, yes, please, can we do horror? <laughs> so the first Thursday of the month um, when we release will be us talking to different horror authors. And I found a horror scholar who I had a terrific conversation with the other day who's going to talk to us about the importance of the genre. It's going to be really fun. And um, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I was rushing to the end of the podcast in hopes that I could avoid that. <laughs> I could avoid that promo. Uh, no. Uh, Kate is Kate is bringing me along, kicking and screaming. Uh, I, this is just not my favorite uh, 
my favorite kind of book, but uh, and indeed I sort of avoid them uh, unless Kate tells me you have to read this, Dad, um, which I will do uh, reluctantly. But uh, it's a very popular genre, I gather, Kate. They are a big part of what made me a reader, and they are, and it's basically my favorite section in the bookstore. Okay, can we get past this and get to yes, the people who, who make this podcast yes. possible? Yes, uh, yes. I will. <laughs> I will. I will. I will do this. Here they are, the people who make the podcast possible. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer, and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertie. Here's a quote for you. It's attributed to Dr. Seuss, but it may not have been actually said by him. I don't know. Be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. 